We open the sacred scriptures to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Together we will read verses 1 through 22. Let us hear the word of the Lord, beginning at Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, To do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering, and burnt offerings, and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law, then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Thus far we read. Based on this passage and the teaching of the whole Bible, our Heidelberg Catechism instructs us concerning the sacrament of holy baptism. As mentioned last week, the sacramental section of the catechism is lengthy. This time through the catechism, I'm going to move more quickly. And so we're going to consider two Lord's Days this morning. Lord's Day 26 and 27. 
The Catechism's explanation of baptism begins with question 69. How art thou admonished and assured by holy baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is of real advantage to thee? Thus, that Christ appointed this external washing with water, adding thereto this promise, that I am as certainly washed by his blood and spirit from all the pollution of my soul, that is, from all my sins, as I am washed externally with water, by which the filthiness of the body is commonly washed away. What is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? It is to receive of God the remission of sins freely, for the sake of Christ's blood, which he shed for us by his sacrifice upon the cross, and also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost, and sanctified to be members of Christ, that so we may more and more die unto sin, and lead holy and unblameable lives. Where has Christ promised us that he will as certainly wash us by his blood and spirit, as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism which is thus expressed, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This promise is also repeated where the scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Is then the external baptism with water the washing away of sin itself? Not at all. For the blood of Jesus Christ only and the Holy Ghost cleanse us from all sin. Why then doth the Holy Ghost call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks thus not without great cause, to wit, not only thereby to teach us that, as the filth of the body is purged away by water, so our sins are removed by the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ, but especially that by this divine pledge and sign, he may assure us, that we are spiritually cleansed from all from our sins, as really as we are externally washed with water. Are infants also to be baptized? Yes, for since they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God, and since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them, no less than to the adult, they must, therefore, by baptism, as a sign of the covenant, be also admitted into the Christian church, and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers, as was done in the old covenant or testament by circumcision, instead of which, baptism is instituted in the new covenant. Beloved in the Lord, in God's mercy and with a father's understanding of his children's needs and earthly weaknesses, our God has given to us the means of grace. Lord's Day 25 last week introduced us to those means of grace. Though God uses many, many means to build up and work good for his children, 
The scriptures teach us that there are especially two things that he has instituted in his church to be the primary tools by which he builds up our faith. Ultimately, there is one means, namely the word of God. But God has given us his word in especially two forms. The word that we hear in the Holy Scriptures, especially as those scriptures are expounded and proclaimed in the preaching of the gospel. And then also his word in a visible form. The word that we see with the eyes and also experience with the senses. Next Sunday we will partake of Holy Communion. And there on the Lord's table we will see the word of the gospel not only visibly, but we will taste that word. And God uses the word that we hear and the word that we see to build up and to strengthen our faith and to fortify our spiritual life. These means of grace are tools, tools that God uses, that the Holy Spirit uses to apply His blessings to us. But God works in such a way that He uses the means of grace as we make diligent use of them. As we, with the ears of faith, listen to the preaching of the gospel, and as we, with an understanding faith, partake of and witness the holy sacraments. In Lord's Days 26 and 27 now, we enter into the Catechism's explanation of the sacraments, how they work, and what benefit they are to us. And as we do so, it's important to remind remind ourselves what a sacrament is. Question and answer 66 in Lord's Day 25 defined a sacrament for us. The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof, he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. As visible words, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two sacraments, signify, that is they picture for us, the promise of the gospel. They show us how we are saved. And as seals, they confirm that promise. They guarantee it. They press that promise upon our hearts Assuring us that that promise is for me and that what I see signified in these visible words is true for me. And that's how God uses baptism and the Lord's Supper to strengthen our faith. Especially by strengthening our assurance of salvation in Christ alone. Thus we have a sermon this morning on baptism, on one of the sacraments. And perhaps... It can sound a bit strange sometimes to have a sermon about a sacrament, a sermon about a visible word. But part of the reason for this is the the, the sacraments benefit us when we partake of them with an understanding faith. So that we may benefit from the administration of baptism and benefit from the administration of the Lord's Supper. It is important that we understand what the sign and seal means. And thus... The usefulness of a word such as we have this morning. May God so grant that as we hear another sermon about baptism. Our understanding of the sacrament may be expanded. Or refreshed in us. So that the next time we witness it. With an understanding faith we may profit. And be spiritually built up by it. We're going to consider Lord's Days 26 and 27. Under the theme the visible word of baptism. We'll start by looking at the meaning of this visible word. That is the truth it communicates to us. Secondly, we will look at the profit of baptism. The benefit that God works in us 
by means of the sacrament as it is received by an understanding faith. And then finally, we will look at the proper recipients of baptism. Who should be baptized? We're going to start with Lord's Day 26, question and answer 70. Because question and answer 70 states very simply what the meaning of baptism is. Baptism is a visible sign and seal. And that sign has meaning. It communicates visually a message. And the message that baptism communicates visually is simply this. We are washed with the blood and spirit of Christ. Baptism is a God-designed picture that sets before you, believing people of God, what Jesus did for you on the cross. It lets you see what Jesus did on the cross, see it by means of a symbol, by means of a picture. Baptism has this message. You are saved only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Blood has significance in the Bible. Because blood stands for life. For example, Leviticus 17 verse 11, the first part of the verse says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood represents life. Sin, which is disobedience to God, the giver of life, sin brings upon the sinner the curse of the law, which is death, the termination of life. And death, in the biblical sense, is not non-existence, but death is suffering the punishment that sin deserves, namely exile from the presence of God and the conscious enduring of the holy wrath of God. That's what death is, separation from God and enduring His just wrath. That's what sin merits for itself. The just recompense of any and all sin is exactly what God said it would be when he gave Adam the command of life in the garden of Eden in the beginning. The day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. In other words, the day that you sin, you shall die. For the wages of sin is death. In the Bible then, the shedding of blood represents the bearing of the curse of the law, the suffering of the punishment that sin deserves. The shedding of blood represents a payment being made for sin. Going back to Leviticus 17 verse 11, you see that idea come out. Leviticus 17 verse 11 continues, God says, I have given it, and it there refers to blood, I have given Blood to you upon the altar to make an atonement. Atonement means payment, satisfaction. To make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. This is the theological principle that operates behind and in the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. That system revolved around this theological concept that sin deserves death. And the shedding of blood, which represents life, is how sin is atoned for. Thus, turning ahead to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the writer to the Hebrews says this, Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, 
And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There Hebrews 9.22 is saying, there can be no remission of sin without payment being made for sin. And the only way for payment to be made for sin is for the curse of the law to be born. The suffering of death, the shedding of blood. But as we well know, and the Old Testament saints knew this too, Animal blood cannot take away sins or wash away guilt. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Those Old Testament sacrifices were picture sacrifices. They kind of had a sacramental function the way baptism and the Lord's Supper have a function in the New Testament. They pictured, they pointed to a higher spiritual reality. The Old Testament sacrifices, the shedding of animal blood for sin, it's not that that animal blood washed away sin, that's impossible. The justice of God will not allow some other creature to pay for man's sin. Moreover, animal blood is not of sufficient value To make atonement for the infinite debt of human sin. That was a picture. It directed the faith of the Old Testament saints to the promised one. The promised Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent by having his heel bruised. The promised Savior who would be the Lamb of God. Whose shedding of his own blood would take away sin. Thus we see the Old Testament sacrifices were not truly atoning, but they were picturing, they were teaching sacrifices. They pointed to the only one who actually could pay for sins, the promised Christ, the Passover Lamb. And that's what Hebrews 10 now especially emphasizes. Hebrews 10 is not a chapter that's first of all concerned with baptism. But the reason we read Hebrews 10 this morning is Hebrews 10 sets before us very clearly the spiritual reality that baptism pictures, signifies, and seals to us. That we are saved not by being washed in the blood of animals, not by atoning for our own sins in some way, but we are saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect priest. And the perfect sacrifice in one. Go to the beginning of our scripture reading. Hebrews 10 verse 1. There the writer to the Hebrews says. The law having a shadow of good things to come. There the writer to the Hebrews is emphasizing. The Old Testament sacrificial system. Was not. The way we are saved. It was a picture. Of the one. Who would come to save us. It was a shadow of good things to come. And then in Hebrews 10. The writer to the Hebrews goes on. To quote Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8. And apply those words to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 6 says. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. Thou hast had no pleasure. And the idea of that verse is not that God was displeased by the sacrifices of his Old Testament people. Not at all. God had instituted that system and God called the people to offer those sacrifices. The point is, none of those sacrifices satisfied for sin. 
Hebrews 10 verse 7 goes on. And these words in Hebrews 10 verse 7, a quote from Psalm 40, are Jesus' own words. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. Jesus came into the world through the incarnation and the virgin birth. The volume of the book was written about him. All of the prophecies of the Old Testament, beginning with the mother promise, all pointing to the coming high priest and savior and Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And he comes to do thy will, O God. What was the will of God that Jesus came to fulfill? Go back to Matthew 1.21. He shall save his people from their sins. And how shall he do that? Think of John the Baptist's words in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus would save his people from their sins by making payment for their sin. He's the only one who can. And he would make payment for their sin by being their Passover lamb. Offering himself as the perfect atoning sacrifice that pays for sin, bears the wrath of God and turns it away from his people, the Passover lamb, so that the punishment for our sin passes over us. The curse of the law, death, passes over us, is averted from us because Jesus takes it for us. Thus Hebrews 10.10 says, we are sanctified, that is set apart as saved, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then continuing on into the following verses, every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but this man, Jesus, God in the flesh, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God because his work was finished and his sacrifice was perfect. And the shedding of his blood actually covers and actually cleanses all of the sins for those people for whom he shed his blood, his elect. Thus the result of Jesus' bloodshed. Hebrews 10 verse 14. By one offering He, Jesus, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. In verse 17, God says, as He looks upon that perfect offering of Jesus Christ, says about His people, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That's what it is to be washed with the blood of Christ. And that's what answer 70 explains. Jesus suffered on the cross to pay for your sins and mine and the sins of all of his elect people. And the shedding of his blood merited for us forgiveness, righteousness, renewal, everlasting life. Membership in Christ's spiritual body, citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, union with Christ as our head, the whole host of spiritual benefits, Christ's riches, freely bestowed upon us poor sinners. And so answer 70 highlights a few of those. To be washed in the blood of Christ means to receive the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood. 
Jesus' work on the cross, His death, His shedding of blood, earned the blessing of forgiveness. And now the Spirit applies that blessing to us, day by day. That's the washing with the blood of Christ. It's the Spirit applying to us the benefits that Christ earned on the cross. Forgiveness of sins, that chief blessing of God. Where He declares to us in the Gospel, I don't hold you responsible for your sin. I'm not going to make you suffer the punishment your sins deserve. I release you. I clear you of guilt and of debt. The washing of Christ's blood is also the Spirit's application of the benefits of Christ internally inside of us to renovate us, to renew us, to restore the image of God in us so that more and more we walk in holiness and live a new life. The washing with the blood of Christ is also the Spirit's work uniting us to Christ so that we are one with Him. We are set apart. No longer citizens of the kingdom of this world, but citizens of His kingdom. Children of God. Baptism marks us as God's people. Just as the Red Sea separated Israel from Egypt and marked the Israelites as God's chosen people, so too the blood of Christ separates us from the world, separates us from sin, separates us from the tyranny of the devil, and marks us as God's people. And baptism is a visible sign and seal of that spiritual marking with the blood of Christ. So that's that's the spiritual reality. That's the message that baptism visually communicates to us. And thus we see what a beautiful sign and seal, what a precious gift this means of grace is. Baptism. The symbolism of baptism is really so very simple. Sometimes we can make the sacraments complicated in our theological discussions and explanations of them. But at the heart, Both of the sacraments are very, very simple. And the symbolism, the picture is something that even you young children here this morning can understand. Water washes. Water washes. And that's the picture. As the Catechism explains, just as water washes away the dirt that's accumulated on my body after a long day of work out in the hot sun, just as water washes away that sweat and refreshes me and makes me clean, that's what the blood of Christ does to my sin-dirty soul. The water of baptism is the sign, it's the picture, and it pictures the blood of Christ. And the application, the taking of that water and putting it upon the person that is being baptized, that pictures the Holy Spirit taking the benefits of Christ's blood earned by His shed blood on the cross and applying them to us. And the picture of baptism is this. What water does for your body, the blood of Christ does for your soul. As you see that water put upon the body and it washes away the dirt. That's exactly what the blood of Christ does to sin. 
and the guilt of sin and the pollution of sin, it cleanses, it washes away. That's what baptism means. And so every time baptism is administered, whether to a covenant child born in the congregation or to an adult who has been converted to the Christian faith, and that water of baptism is applied to their head. It's a visual sermon. It's a sermon, a word of God that we see with our eyes. And what's it doing? It's setting before us the promise. As question and answer 69 says, that I am as certainly washed by His blood and spirit from all the pollution of my soul, that is from all my sins, as I am washed externally with water. That's the meaning of baptism. Simple, beautiful, a powerful sign and seal. A visible word of God that says so much. And when it is witnessed and received with an understanding faith, it is a means of grace by which the Spirit builds up my faith and strengthens my spiritual life. And that gets us to the prophet. The prophet. The sign and seal of baptism is not empty. It's not a word picture that has no significance for us. It's a God-designed means of grace. It's visible gospel. It profits us. And the way it profits us is that it confirms that the promise of God visibly depicted in the sacrament is for me. It's for me personally. It builds up our faith by showing us, letting us see in the form of a symbol what Jesus did on Calvary. We're earthly creatures. And the sacraments take theological concepts which sometimes can seem abstract and makes them very concrete. Jesus' death takes away your sins. Just like clean water takes dirt from the body. Seeing that. Observing it, witnessing it, receiving it with an understanding faith. Builds up that faith. So that I trust Christ and rest in Him. Two main ways then that baptism profits us. And that comes out in question 69. How art thou admonished and assured by holy baptism? There's the two ways. This visible gospel, this sign and seal admonishes us and in that way it profits us. And it assures us and in that way profits us. Briefly, let's look at those two things. When I witness baptism, I am admonished by baptism. Now, that word in the catechism may seem, seem interesting, admonished. Usually when we think of admonition or admonishing, we think of a warning or a rebuke. That element is here, but it's not the main idea. The, 
The other meaning of the word admonish is simply to put into your mind. And that's the primary idea here. Baptism puts something into your mind. It reminds you. It brings something to the forefront of your mind so that that thing can loom large in your mind and influence how you live. Baptism admonishes us of this. The one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. It's of real advantage to me. Baptism says, remember. Baptism says, remember, just as much as the Lord's Supper says, this do in remembrance of me. Baptism says, remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. Meditate and consider the benefits that that brings to you. You are washed in the blood. What you see the water do, Christ's blood has done for your soul. Bear that in mind. Live in light of that. All sorts of other things want to replace that truth in the forefront of your mind. The devil comes as the accuser of the brethren. He says, look at yourself. Look at the filthiness of your sin. Look at you. You think there's any way the holy God is going to receive and accept you? Look at your spiritual dirt. And baptism is the visible word of God that says, no. Not denying that. No, no. Baptism fully acknowledges our sinfulness. The fact that the symbolism of baptism is a washing means we are dirty. But baptism says, no, you are washed. You are washed. You are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that's what belongs in the forefront of your mind. That silences the accuser. Look at baptism. Remember your baptism and what that baptism pictures. Washed in the blood and the spirit of Christ. So that in God's eyes, for the sake of Christ, he sees you as clean. He does not deal with you according to the dirt of your sin. But he looks upon you with favor for the sake of Christ who has washed you clean with his blood. That's the testimony of baptism. That's the visible word. That's the word with which baptism admonishes us and says, no. When you're tempted, when the devil accuses you, when your sins rise up against you, though those sins are real, this is the truth that conquers all. You are washed in the blood of Christ. Even if you were baptized as an infant, you don't remember when that sacrament was administered to you. That doesn't mean it's of no benefit. Not at all. Though baptism is is administered only once, it's not of benefit to you and me only once, or only at the time when it is administered. Baptism is a spiritual mark that we carry with us throughout the course of our lives. And baptism admonishes us, it reminds us, that visible sign and seal was administered to me. And that visible sign and seal 
has meaning for the entirety of my life. It's a continual testimony from God Himself. I've washed you. You're clean in my sight. I've separated you from Egypt by the Red Sea of Christ's blood. You're mine. You're mine. My child. My heir. To whom, for Christ's sake, I will give all that his blood purchased for you. Life everlasting in my kingdom. Think upon your baptism, beloved. Think upon it. Meditate upon it. That doesn't mean you you put your trust in the fact that that sign was put upon you. That's a mistake the church has fallen into in the past. That was a mistake at the time of the Reformation that our Reformed forefathers, by the grace of God, overcame. The, The comfort of baptism isn't in the mere fact that that sign was given you, or that there's some magical power in the water. That's not the case. But your comfort is in the message that that sign communicates to you. The message that it confirms to you when you think upon your baptism and you remember that baptism or when you witness a baptism administered and you see that sign and seal and you ponder it, it admonishes you, it puts this in your mind. What you see here, symbolized in the washing of water, the Spirit has done for you. When you see the water, you're assured of the blood. And that leads to the second thing then. Baptism admonishes, and as it admonishes us, as it puts into our minds the work of Christ, it also assures us. And there's the connection. Admonishment leads to assurance. The putting into our minds of what Christ has done leads to a reassurance of our souls. The sacraments are not only signs, but they are also seals designed by God to press the promise of the gospel upon our hearts. The catechism is at pains to emphasize this. Answer 69 teaches that Christ has added to the sign of the washing of water a promise, the content of which is... I am as certainly washed by His blood and Spirit as I am washed externally with water. Note the language. As certainly. As certainly as I perceive with my eyes the visible washing of water as the sacrament is administered, that certain I may be of the invisible washing of my soul by the blood of Christ. And answer 73 emphasizes this even more. How baptism is designed by God to fortify the assurance of faith. Especially by this divine pledge and sign. He may assure us that we are spiritually cleansed from our sins as really as we are externally washed with water. Maybe you think of the familiar line in the baptism form. The Holy Ghost assures us by this holy sacrament that He will dwell in us and sanctify us to be members of Christ. Admonished and assured. That's the prophet. 
Two things to remember. Children, remember these two things. Next time baptism happens here in church, think about this. As the water is being put upon the head of the little child, that water is admonishing and assuring you. It's putting something into your mind. And what's it putting into your mind? It's putting into your mind that just as really as that water is washing the head of the baby, that truly Jesus' blood has washed you from your sins. It puts that into mind. And so it also assures you. It makes you confident. I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. Nothing can separate me from His saving love. Remember that. Think upon that next time you see baptism. Last of all this morning, the recipients. This is last in the catechism's treatment of baptism. Devotes question and answer 74 to the question of who should be baptized. Part of this question is not controversial. Everyone agrees that adult believers should be baptized. That is, those who come to faith in Christ in their adult years. Converts to the Christian faith ought to be baptized. That's the model set forth in the book of Acts. And that's what we would expect to find in the book of Acts. As the gospel goes out to people for the first time, there are going to be many, many adults who are converted to the faith. And as they are converted, they ought to receive the sign of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ by being baptized. Everyone agrees about that. Adult converts are to be baptized. But what about children? What about infants? Children born within the church to believing parents. Much debate has swirled about that. Should the children of the church be baptized? Are infants also to be baptized? This morning we don't need to get into all of the complicated arguments that some make against infant baptism, and wrongly so, and all of the many arguments against those arguments supporting the biblical truth of infant baptism, let's simply look at how the catechism explains this. And the catechism explains it so very clearly and simply. Yes, infants are to be baptized. And there's one fundamental reason why. And when we grasp this fundamental reason, all of the other questions disappear. And it really becomes quite simple. The fundamental reason that infant children of believers are to be baptized, the fundamental reason is they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God. And redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them as well as the adult. That simple. They, that is, children, as well as adults, belong to the covenant of God. God's covenant is His relationship of love and friendship that He establishes with His people by His grace. He brings His elect into that bond of the covenant. And God brings His elect into that bond of the covenant, not just when they reach a certain age, but even as children. Our baptism form 
aptly quote certain passages which make this clear. Genesis 17 verse 17. Where God says, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee. And thy seed after thee. That is as clear as can be that God establishes his covenant not only with elect adult believers, but also with elect children that are born to believing parents. Now we know not every child born to a believing household is an elect child of God. There are Esau's as well as Jacob's born in the sphere of the covenant and that is a great grief. But God's promise in the scriptures is that he is pleased to gather his elect in the line of generations. And it's based upon that promise and that reality that God establishes his covenant with elect children as well as adults. It's based upon that, that the church rightly baptizes children. The children of believers. They're included in the covenant. And the elect children of believers, God gives them all of the same promises that he gives to adult converts to the faith. Another verse that our baptism form quotes, Acts 2 verse 39. The promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The promise is not just given to those adults who are far off. Who will be converted by the preaching of the gospel. But it is given to you believers. And to your elect children. So. If baptism is a sign and seal. Of belonging to the covenant. And of the promises of God. And it is. And if the elect children of believers belong to the covenant. And have those promises. Why would you withhold from them the sign. Of what God has already given to them. You see. The infant children of believers not only may be baptized, but must receive the sign. Because they're God's children. It doesn't matter if they haven't come to conscious faith yet. For as they were without their knowledge partakers in the condemnation of Adam, so they are without their knowledge received again in Christ. How does God view the elect children of the church? Does he view them as outsiders? Or as members of his covenant. Are they covered by the blood of Christ and forgiven? Or must they wait till they're old enough to receive forgiveness? Of course they're forgiven. The sins of little children are forgiven just as much as the sins of adult believers. The point is clear, isn't it? Infant children of believers ought to be baptized as members of the covenant and of the church of God. And that testifies to the glory of God's grace. And that's where we end. And let that be the thought that prevails after the conclusion of this sermon. What grace of God who takes poor sinners and without our aid 
washes us clean in the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And His powerful grace is able to storm the heart of an entrenched adult unbeliever living in paganism for many years. Storm that heart and convert him and bring him into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that same grace is able to save a child right from his or her mother's womb and begin renewing that child from his or her first breath in this world. A saving grace that works without our aid. And baptism, whether adult or infant, shows how marvelous the grace of God is. And so while it is a means of grace to us to strengthen and edify us, let baptism, whenever we witness it, also prompt us to praise the God of all grace. Who has washed us. And saved us. In the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Father we thank thee for baptism. For the beautiful picture and seal that it is. Grant that this word about baptism this morning may. Furnish us with a richer understanding of the meaning of this sacrament. So that the next time we observe it and witness it. We may do so with a faith that understands, so that we may profit richly from this means of grace that Thou hast given. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final Psalter number is number 239. 239. We'll sing the two stanzas, both of the stanzas of number 239.